Hello and welcome back to Fertility Talks, the therapy fertility podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medding, and this season I'll be sitting down with none other than the medical director of therapy fertility, Dr. John Kennedy. Each week we will be chatting all things fertility, trying to conceive and much, much more. We hope that through these series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. This week, we are going to be talking about fertility testing. Testing. Why? Why do we do it? What does it cost? And what are the benefits of early testing? So, yeah, testing, because you want to get to episode eight. And then start talking about testing. We really, really kind of we planned that out well. Really organized here, guys. Yeah, uh, good work. So, what I want to talk maybe a little bit about is the overall testing that we would do as part of a fertility workup, what we specifically would do in therapy fertility, and what other circumstance would necessitate other tests. So, actually, there's there's quite a bit in this. Um, you could go, you could go all day on this. First things to understand about testing. Whenever you're doing a test, you should be asking a question and trying to answer that question. And that means two things. You should want to know the answer to the question. Don't do a test unless you want to know what it's, what it's, what it's showing. And also, the test realistically should change your management depending on the results mm. of that test. Otherwise, there's probably less value in doing it. The other thing, before we get into the nitty gritty of it, is something that we often get asked in, in, in fertility. If you worked in fertility, you'll be very familiar with the, I just want you to test me for everything. Mm. And that is that can't be done because there's no never any end to this. And inappropriate testing is incredibly dangerous because people who don't work in healthcare or in scientific fields have a tendency to believe the tests are absolute and binary, that they tell you if there is a problem or if there isn't a problem. And while that is more or less often the case, we know that all tests have a margin for error. So if you, say, pull 100 people off the street, just randomly, and you stick them all in a whole body MRI, you don't charge them anything, you just do a whole body MRI without context, without anything else, in maybe one or two of those hundred, maybe even three, you will find a problem that will allow for intervention such that it will improve their life or save their life or, or, or improve mortality or something. You'll find something that was going undiagnosed that if left untreated would have been very, very serious. And maybe in 60, 70 of the rest, there'll be nothing wrong. Hmm. But in the other 30 to 40, you're going to see something that you're not quite sure what it is and it necessitates further investigation and it's probably nothing, but really it's the kind of thing we should sort of keep an eye on. I know you don't actually have any symptoms, but we maybe should do a small surgery and do a biopsy or just repeat the MRI or do other scans. And suddenly you've taken that cohort of people and medicalized them and now you're treating them and there's nothing wrong with them. Mm. So that's always the danger with these random tests. And so you have to be a little bit cautious about that. Now, against that big advocate of people hitting a certain age and having their cholesterol checked and having a health workup and all those other things, they're fine to do, but you have to be willing to look at results in context of what you're trying to accomplish with them. So that's the kind of preamble and the caveat to all of this. When it comes to fertility, 
you need three things, and I know I've said this before, three things to make a happy, healthy baby. You need a good egg, you need good sperm, and you need a place to put them. That's it. So any test you should do should be targeted to these three areas. And it's a really useful way of kind of breaking it down in terms of what you're thinking of trying to accomplish with the testing. So you'd break it down into the three categories, egg, sperm, and housing. So we start with sperm. It's easy to test sperm. You just do a sperm analysis. You look at the number of sperm, you look at if they're moving, you look at if they look normal, and that's great. Okay, that's an easy thing to do. It's a absolute baseline test that you can do in virtually all cases. Don't see why you wouldn't do it. There's a secondary test you can do on sperm called a DNA fragmentation test, which tests, I think I've spoken about this before, mm -hmm. uh, which talks about how fragile or friable the DNA is within the sperm because maybe that's associated with increased rates of miscarriage and failure. The jury is still absolutely, is not is still a little bit out on whether this is absolutely beneficial, but we think there's some value in it in certain people. It's not a... And a question that yeah. often is being asked is, is this sperm analysis something that you can do instead of the DNA frag or is it sometimes indicated to do both? Like, would you always yeah. do the semen analysis as a baseline? Yeah. So if you know that the person has maybe a history of miscarriages or is older or overweight or has comorbidities, mm. you might say, look, I think on balance, we might as well do a DNA fragmentation. As, at the same time as we do the semen analysis and that gets frozen and sent off somewhere else but you only provide the one sample and you do both on that yeah so it wouldn't be a replacement for the semen analysis it is absolutely not a replacement for the okay. semen analysis and then there's other tests you can do on sperm as well the sperm fish analysis looking at the genetics of of certain chromosomes of certain numbers of sperm and again, how reliable that is. You're starting, to, once you get out of basic semen analysis, you're sort of getting into the weeds a little mm. bit. DNA frag probably has value in certain cohorts and sperm fish is probably of less value under, unless it's very limited circumstances. So what we would do, therapy, is semen analysis and where indicated DNA fragmentation. We spend a lot of time talking to females about their history and looking at their blood tests we'll talk about those blood tests as well and and trying to try to understand and see what's going on in that space and we spent very little time talking to the guys and oftentimes mm. you get asked well you didn't go into the same level of depth and it's important to find out do they have a medical history where do they work are they working on what environmental factors might might be at play in terms of a poor semen analysis but ultimately it's dead easy for us to see the sperm quality it's not easy for us to see the egg quality yeah so that's why it's a little bit easier what do we do for a female who comes in well the first blood test i'm not going to harp on about it because i've harped on about it at length i think every other time we've spoken about is amh it's a blood test that measures the ovarian reserve how many apples are left in the barrel what pool of eggs are you working with it's about quality it's not about quality, it's about quantity, okay? Mm -hmm. So it just tells you how proactive you should be about your fertility options and how you might respond to treatments. That's it. That's a blood test. And I actually had it done last week. Have you got the result back yet? Um, I haven't even checked. Like, you know, in my in my case, I'm, I'm not too um, concerned about it because it was, for me, it was purely, you know, as a way to show people how easy it is to get done. Yeah. Um, you know, we already have two kids we're not thinking of using my eggs, so it's not necessarily something I need to know. Um, but I wanted to do it to actually just go through the experience of it. So you've had your AMH done before? Mm. Kind of, if you... I've never had my AMH done before. That's the oh. thing. So when we went through treatment before, 
um, we were very set on and we've talked we talked about yeah. this in the reciprocal IVF episode that when someone comes to you for reciprocal yes. IVF you're going to very much encourage both parties to be tested when it was you know when we were going through our cycles we knew we were using Audrey's eggs so I just simply didn't have it done so I have no idea so here's a fun question do you think you'll care about the result I actually think I will you know, I, I wasn't anticipating that. But then Ooh, as yeah. I was getting the blood drawn, I was kind of thinking to myself, am I going to care? You if... have bitten off more than you can share. <laughs> we'll see, won't we? We've... Renee's well... not coming to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but you're going to feel a certain kind of way. But it's interesting. Of course you do, because yeah. it's it's information you're getting about your body. Yeah. Um, but it is important to, to, to remember that, you know, even if... I did come back with a, a really low AMH. That doesn't mean I have bad eggs. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't be able to use my own eggs to become yep. pregnant. Um, it is just information. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, guys especially are disproportionately happy or unhappy with the results of a semen analysis. As though it kind of somehow translates to... To virility and and uh, who you are as a and man. One and one is good and one is bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, you know, this makes me less of a man or more mm. of a man. And it can be an awful blow getting a bad semen analysis result. Yeah, and I think the same for the AMH, getting Absolutely. getting a low Absolutely. result. People feel guilty somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. shamed and guilt. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. So you do the AMH. Um, other bloods that commonly get done that I am not a fan of are baseline hormone bloods. So people will have their FSH and LH checked early on in the cycle or their progesterone checked three quarters of the way through the cycle, day 21 progesterone. Why might you do these things? Well, FSH and LH are hormones produced in the head, they're produced in the hypothalamus, stored in the pituitary, and they control and regulate the growth and release of your follicle and egg every month. When you, as you get older, and as the ovaries have to start to work harder to produce eggs, you get a positive and negative feedback loop. So a signal is sent from the ovaries up to the brain saying, listen, we're having trouble producing eggs, we need more FSH. So your FSH rises the more the ovaries are struggling to produce eggs. If you take somebody who's 85 years old, who's been menopausal for years, and you check her FSH, it'll be really, really high. Mm -hmm. It's a crazy system when you think about it, but it just screams along. Checking FSH at the start of a cycle will give you some information. But unless the person is menopausal or perimenopausal or some kind of weird endocrine disorder where they're not producing anything, it's not going to tell you that much. Mm. And it's certainly not going to be nearly as valuable a piece of information as doing an AMH. So while I'm happy occasionally to check an FSH at the start of a stimulation cycle, and it's a, it's a value we can use to see how people might respond, for the most part, if I have somebody who's trying to conceive, I don't actually care what their FSH is, mm. if their AMH is normal, because I've done a bunch of other tests instead. Equally, a day 21 progesterone probably isn't that useful either and it's a test that's done an awful lot too this is a blood that blood test that's assumptively done we think about a week after you ovulate so we think if you're ovulating on day 14 we check a progesterone on day 21 it should have risen and that would suggest to me oh you ovulated a week ago so that's nice i suppose to hear that you ovulated but it's of no value to you on that cycle it was a week ago it's closing the door after the horse has bolted equally if your cycle is longer or shorter 
that day 21 isn't the right time to do it. So it's not a test I'm particularly fond of either. If you have a regular cycle, I'm 85% sure that you're ovulating regularly every month. Anyway, not 100%, but 85%. So there are a couple of tests that tend to get done an awful lot, which I don't think are particularly of value. And what blood tests are of value? There aren't too many, to be honest. Way there, there are probably more blood tests done than there are blood tests of value. So what I would always do, I check a thyroid screen. Look at thyroid is your thyroid gland is in your neck. It essentially controls metabolism and metabolic rates. We know that high hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism, low or high, kind of implications for ability to get pregnant, cycle regulation, and um, and miscarriage. So it's an important thing to kind of keep an eye on and keep tight control of. So I always think that's something that absolutely should be done. Some people have suggested prolactin should be checked. I used to check it all the time. I don't anymore. We know that if your prolactin is high, it can play merry hell with the cycle. But if the cycle is normal, it doesn't actually matter if mm. prolactin is high. And the other thing about prolactin is it's a terribly unreliable witness. Prolactin is a hormone that responds to stress. It goes up when you're stressed. Lots of things can cause you to be stressed. Uh, something that can cause somebody to be stressed is having a blood test. I have a funny story about prolactin. Audrey, when we were going through a second cycle, had a shockingly high prolactin yeah. and the cycle was going to get cancelled. But um, the, we figured out the reason why it was so high because then had a follow up one and it was perfect. Yeah. Um, it was so high because we had a one and a half year old in with us while she had the blood draw and the one and a half year old was screaming, freaking out. So, yeah. of course. So then the secondary test you can do if the first one's high to see is it real, but it just turns into hassle mm. and uh, worry and anxiety. Yeah. It's daft. Yeah. So I've, I've stopped doing that. Um, the other test that sometimes gets thrown around is testosterone. Mm. Uh, if somebody's testosterone is low, should they be boosted? Again, the evidence of that is very, very thin. So I think checking somebody's testosterone, all you're doing is ramping up their anxiety. And these are all female tests, female yes. blood tests. Female blood tests. This would this this would be it. Are there any blood tests you do for men? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if the sperm is very low, you can check the hormones. You can do exactly the same: prolactin, FSH, okay. testosterone. You would do them in the context of, oh, the sperm isn't looking right. Why is the sperm not looking right? It wouldn't be just off the bat. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And in, if the guy had a very poor sperm analysis, you could even do genetic testing to see mm. if there a genetic reason. And then you do the hormone test to see is what we call the hypothalamic pituitary axis working well to coordinate the, the promotion and development of healthy normal sperm. But you wouldn't do that unless it was indicated. And just as I've kind of crapped all over a whole bunch of these tests, I'll happily do them if they're indicated. Mm. But blanket bombing everybody with them causes more worry and anxiety so the core test you check the thyroid that's a good idea you check the amh that's a good idea you check the rubella status most everybody is vaccinated if you got the mmr as a kid mm. measles mumps rubella then you're covered but not everybody maintains immunity and why do you check that nothing to do with their fertility but rubella is a horrific disease to get if you're pregnant it can okay. have awful impacts on the pregnancy so we don't want that to happen so if you're non-immune before you're trying to get pregnant, then maybe a booster is indicated, okay. depending on the circumstances. So we check that. But again, nothing to do with fertility. You know, it's just a safety yeah. kind of a safety net. So AMH, thyroid, rubella, thyroid profile, 
rubella and we also do a full blood count now there's loads of things in a full blood count but things we're really interested in your hemoglobin your white cell count and your platelets why are we talking about doing this because we're thinking about potentially doing a procedure like an egg collection and i want to make sure you aren't at don't have very low platelets mm. or you're not anemic or so at risk for bleeding excessively yeah. now i'm not talking about doing yeah. a whole coagulation screen or anything like that but just the the big things mm. the problem with a full blood count is a full blood count the three big things on it are hemoglobin platelets and white cell count but there's about 20 other markers on the form all right now hematocrit mean corpuscular volume the breakdown of the white cells into eosinophils neutrophils etc etc loads of different little ones a blood test we define normal range in a blood test by what 90 percent of the population will have okay so it's on a curve uh gaussian distribution as it's called so 90 percent of people will have something in this normal range. But that means that 10% of abnormal results aren't actually abnormal results. Yeah. They're just a lit, they're just in the tail end. It's a bit of, different. Of, um, yeah, 90% they're just slight, of slightly outside of the range. The problem is when you have 20 different parameters, mm. two of those, sh statistically speaking, should be abnormal mm. for no other reason other than statistics. <laughs> yeah. So you have to take that with a pinch of salt as well. And you've got to look at these results in, in context. So people often get freaked out. Oh, I saw this thing on my blood test. It was normal and nobody cares. And there's something wrong with me and nobody's listening to me. No, you need to understand. Yeah, and then the someone starts Googling it and saying, exactly. oh, that's an abnormal result. And exactly. So that's something you need to be a little, a little bit careful about as well. So generally speaking, I'd recommend thyroid function. I'd recommend AMH, rubella, full blood count. That's as, as, as a good loadout. We also test for chlamydia and gonorrhea mm -hmm. because in one study done in one of the Dublin maternity hospitals about oh, 15, 16 years ago, they randomly screened 20 to 35 year old women for chlamydia. Uh, these were people who were attending a gynae clinic, but they weren't attending an STD or a gum clinic mm -hmm. or guide or anything like that. And the chlamydia positivity rate was 25%. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of asymptomatic. It's dropped a little bit now, I think. But a lot of asymptomatic chlamydia. And what is the problem with that in it can, uh, it cycle? Can damage, it can damage the tubes. It can okay. damage your fertility potential. And if we don't know about it, we start doing procedures like egg collections, like assessing wombs and tubes and ovaries without giving antibiotic cover, which I don't want to give to everybody, then you can put people at risk. So it's something we screen for in advance. Okay, so if if someone did come back positive, oh, you just that it. would be fine, but you would just, you would treat it you as treat you go. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you treat it and that's that's fine. It's better to know, you know? Yeah. Uh, much, much better to know. So that's something we screen for. I think that's a good idea. There's billions of other blood tests you can do. There's loads of them. Um, there's immune markers. There's other hormonal markers. There's genetic testing. But they aren't indicated unless they're indicated, unless there's something very specific in that person. And would history. you do something that wasn't indicated if it? Well, no, that sorry. <laughs> would you? That's no. completely the wrong no, question. Yeah. Would you do something that you do, don't normally oh, do sure. if it was indicated? Sure, yeah. you have to be flexible sure. in this. I mean, you have to be. That's, I mean, the core of good medical practice, and this is something that we've all kind of veered away from in the last while, is taking a history. And checking the patient out. History and examination is what was all was drilled into us. And history and examination is being supplanted by just blanket bomb testing. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's not another way of approaching the situation. 
but you'll miss things. Equally, history and examination can miss things. So it's about finding the balance between those two. No point in over-testing because you add cost and anxiety without adding to value. But equally, you need to be respectful of the person's history and go, do you know what? I think there's a real history, a likelihood of polycystic ovarian syndrome mm. here, which I might need to manage. We should probably check a testosterone and SHBG and androstenedione. There's a bunch of things in FSHLH ratio. There's a bunch of things I should do in this situation. Or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe yeah. I have enough information over here. And it comes back to that core thing I was saying at the what start. What are you trying to do? <laughs> Is it going to change my management? Yeah. You know, and if it's not going to change my management, then why am I doing it? Yeah. You know, and I also think you have to be very conscious when you're talking to a patient, you have a responsibility. If you start talking about a test, it's almost unfair to start talking about a test you don't want to do mm. because you're trying to talk the other person into it and then out of it, yeah. which is just crazy. Yeah. Now, the reason you might have that conversation is you want to offset the conversation you have down the line going, well, why didn't you, why didn't yeah. you do this yeah, before? Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes back to trust and communication. Mm. And there's no clever way of doing this. There's no point to me in telling you about every test there is and what I'm going to do and why I'm not going to do this and why I'm not going to do that. It's impossible to do that. We have to roll the punches. But equally, I have to be prepared to uh, to answer the question, well, why wasn't that done before? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a routine part of testing. And that can be very aggravating for people. What people need to understand is that once the core tests are done, the other tests are substantially less likely to add value, even in subsequent cycles. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not like we're being laissez-faire or loosey-goosey at the start. A number of people said to me, well, I didn't expect the first IVF cycle to work because it was only a test cycle. Like, that wasn't my expectation. <laughs> I thought I was quite clear. I thought you had a 40% chance of getting a baby yeah. from this. And I'm really sorry it didn't work. Yeah. You know, it was a great shot. Uh, yeah. So so it's managing that. So they'd be the blood test. What's the EU viral screen? Oh, yes. Pardon me. Um, so it's a legal requirement that when we bring gametes, that's eggs, sperm, eggs or sperm into the lab and start manipulating, not just to something as simple as a semen analysis. That's a little bit separate. But the minute we bring eggs in, or sperm in to use them for treatment, to mm. freeze or use them, that's called procurement. And we can't bring those samples into the laboratory unless the person has been shown to be HIV and hepatitis negative. So it's a test that has to be done within 90 days of procurement. So we and do And is that. that for anyone who's coming in? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it just has to be done. Yeah. It has to be done. And people say, oh, no, I had it done, but it wasn't. It was done elsewhere. It was done outside the 90 days. So it just doesn't, it just has to be done again. Yeah. We've tried to be more affordable with this and bring the cost of it down a little bit because it's a little bit frustrating. It's like an extra hidden cost almost for some people. Yeah. But it, it's just something that has to be done. And what would happen if someone was positive? So if you have um, an old hepatitis B infection, mm. that's something to know about. We might check your liver function mm. to make sure because it can get reactivated if you're immune suppressed or immunocompromised but for the most part it's just something we need to be aware of if you have old hepatitis c active hepatitis c active hepatitis b or active hiv then certainly in our clinic we can't treat you and there's very very few clinics in Ireland that actually can treat you depending on which one it is so you need to be given advice on that once in all my years of practice have i seen a hiv result come back positive okay. once in okay. whatever 12 years of practice yeah i've seen it in obstetrics obviously but yeah, it's yeah. a different different population so it's rare as hen's teeth it really is but it but, can happen and it yeah. has to be done yeah and we can complain about it and go oh no you know this doesn't have to be like this. the risk of transmitting hiv from one straw to another straw in a mm. tank is theoretical yeah 
it, 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 I think there was one split years ago in another clinic mm. in a different country, but really it just doesn't happen. Yeah. But we're still super cautious. Yeah. So it just has to be done. Yeah, as you have to be. Um, you kind of mentioned there about uh, accepting results from other clinics. Yeah. Is that something that y- that we do? Oh, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I mean, uh, like reinventing the wheel is a waste of time. So if somebody has had tests done and they are reasonably in date, of course I'm going to accept them. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the problems start to arise when people go, I had that done. But I can't provide I you can't with get the, the results. So you go, but they told me it was normal. I went, that's great. And it's not yeah. a question of trust. It's just I no, kind of wouldn't really want to, really yeah. to see, yeah, yeah. see the whites of their eyes with it. And obviously that can take some time and all the rest. We're flexible in yeah. this. Um, so if anyone is thinking of maybe coming to therapy and they've had testing done, it would be a good idea to maybe get those so, results So th- this front. is almost like a little plug as well, which well, I mean, I suppose we're here. Um, <laughs> I, people need to realise they aren't the GP's tests and results. They aren't the hospital's test results. They aren't the clinic's test results. They're your tests and they're your results. And frankly, you should get them as soon as they're done. Immediately. So we've we've changed the script a little bit. We're not acting as gatekeepers. When, as soon as we have the results of your tests and investigations, they get published to the portal, your, your access to your medical records. And you can download them. You can do whatever you want with them. They're yours. They're secure. They're published securely. Um, and they're your results. Now, I think that's the right way of doing things. I think it's absolutely the correct way of doing things. And it's how we should all be acting. It's how modern healthcare should work. We aren't gatekeepers. We aren't holding the results. The downside of this is that people will see their results and they will see their results without perhaps having the context or the back medical background to interpret them correctly. So they hit Google and they immediately start driving themselves nuts and maybe they're not due to have a medical review for three or four weeks mm. and they freak themselves out for that three or four weeks. That's the downside. You can counteract that by explaining, look, we're going to do the test. As soon as we have the result, we're going to publish your portal. We will talk about it mm. and it'll be there and don't freak out. And that I think is working really well actually astonishingly well at the moment people are getting behind that and and they're responding very well and people can send in a query to the portal they, can, they certainly can we can we, and, and if people want to move their appointment and there's availability yeah. we can do that as yeah. well you know so so there's lots of different ways of doing this but i still think while there there's challenges with every approach but it's still it's your better. personal information it's, it's your information yeah. it's and so this notion of I need to get my results from X. We need to subvert that completely. Yeah. We need to change how we how we think about that. They're your results. You should already have them. Yeah. You know? Oh, we won't give you that. We won't give you the copy of that note, that record. Is it? Why not? Yeah. They're they're mine. Yeah. They're not yours. You're only minding them for me. Yeah. So, you know, getting 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 ahead of that I think is, is really, really important. Um and then the last thing you have to test is um the housing. The okay, the so that's talking about ultrasounds. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Okay. Yeah. So there's, this is where it's slightly controversial. What we're doing, I think is, well, obviously I think is the right way of doing it because it's what we're doing. But you would you would have some, some pushback on that. At the most basic, you can say it's reasonable to do an ultrasound, an internal transgenital ultrasound scan on a woman to see the size and shape of the uterus and to look at the ovaries and look for any ovarian cysts and to do that antrotholic account the other marker of ovarian reserve 
it is also reasonable to say if the tubes aren't swollen or distended, if you can't see anything abnormal there, it is perhaps reasonable to think that the tubes are open. Okay, so maybe you don't need to test them. So a lot of centres out there, and there'd be international evidence behind that, says, would say you don't have to check the cavity, the inside of the womb, formally, and you don't have to check the tubes before you do fertility treatment. So how would you check if you didn't check internally? Well, you don't. You assume yeah. it's normal. Oh, you just assume. You assume okay. it's normal. Okay. You go, look, I have no reason to believe. You have no history of anything. So why, why, why would I believe it? And especially, let's say, you're in a same-sex relationship. Yeah, let's so if, if I woman. had rocked up, you I have know. no reason yeah, to believe. Yeah. So why would I put you through this expensive, time-consuming, painful test to check your tubes? There's a couple of different ways we can, we can do that. The answer to that is because fertility treatment is hard mm. and it's incredibly frustrating even if the hit rate is relatively low it's incredibly frustrating to realize oh wow IUI was never going to work because my tubes weren't open mm. the bridge was out of commission and that can be very disappointing equally you do a cycle of IVF it doesn't work you have a miscarriage and then we do this and you suddenly realize the uterus is heart shaped and that's a linkage there and you just didn't know so that can be very frustrating so it's a little bit perhaps defensive to open the account with saying we should check the inside of the womb or we should check the tubes at the same time as we do this other thing but personally i think it's a good idea yeah. and that's that's the hill i'm willing to die on okay <laughs> especially considering there's a couple of ways of doing it. there's x-ray test called hsg there's what we do which is called hycosy which uses ultrasound you can have a small surgery a laparoscopy looking inside the tummy with the camera or a hysteroscopy looking inside the womb with the camera i like hycosy because it's quick it's relatively painless relatively painless we tell people to take some paracetamol beforehand it only takes about 10-15 minutes it's, it's in and out it's pretty sharp um, it's not as painful as a HSG is and it's not as invasive it might give you less information but it's a hell of a lot less invasive than a general anesthetic in surgery that does a laparoscopy or hysteroscopy so there's lots of different ways of assessing the womb and we're trying to find the middle ground that navigates the risk reward profile so usually best. if someone comes to you who has a uterus and ovaries yep. you would usually suggest uh, high cozy. I would indeed. And then, in fact, just the other day, I was asked the question, but John, we're doing IVF. We don't need you to check the tubes. So why are you checking my tubes? Mm. Because sometimes IVF cycles go sideways. Mm. And if you're responding very poorly, let's say, you, okay, you haven't gotten pregnant for three years. You've never been pregnant. We're planning on doing an IVF cycle. We do an IVF cycle and it's not working so well. There's only one or two follicles there. You haven't responded as we expected. We don't want to go ahead and do an egg collection. That's going to be costly and time-consuming. We think you can do better. We think this isn't as good as it gets. Yeah. We think should we're back. So we're going to cancel this cycle. Okay, can we salvage this cycle? Mm. Yeah, well, we could try converting it into a timed intercourse cycle mm -hmm. or better still, maybe an IUI cycle. But for those to be of any value, we need to know the tubes are open. Fine, we can assume the tubes are open. But it's nice to know that, especially if there's any fiscal charge for converting to these yeah. instead of just walking away from the thing altogether. Once I've... And I want to check the womb. I want to check the internal architecture of the womb, and that's what the Hycosi does. Once I've taken the time and effort to pass the speculum, to put that small little tube into the neck of the womb, to take the speculum out, I'm doing an ultrasound, I'm putting in some water to look at the shape, lumps, bumps, polyps, fibroids, any irregularities that could impact on implantation or contribute to miscarriage. I've done all that. It is simplicity itself for me to take a second little syringe and check the tubes. Yeah. It takes about five seconds. Yeah. 
why wouldn't I do that? You're already in there. I'm already yeah. there. It doesn't add risk. It doesn't add, it doesn't add financial cost to the patient that charges the same whether or not I check the tubes. Yeah. So why wouldn't I just do it for everybody? Yeah. So that's my logic. Yeah. Makes sense. I hope so. Um, so those are the main testing options for women or is there, so, and so, when I say women, just going to clarify, yeah. I do mean anyone who has a uterus. Yes. So then you get into what other cohorts might you be looking at? So if somebody's come in, they've a history of recurrent miscarriage. So on those people, you might want to check uh, a thrombophilia screen. Do they have any clotting disorders? You might want to check an autoantibody screen. Do they have... And again, are these bloods? Blood tests, sorry. Yeah, everything. Assume yeah. bloods and say, unless it's yeah. a, a clotting screen. You might want to do a genetic screen, a karyotype 46XX for uh, natal males, 46... Sorry, natal females and 46XY for, for natal males. Um, and just just seeing where that is. The hit rate on those tests is very, very low, mm. you know. Uh, but but that would be the usual loadout for recurrent miscarriage investigations if somebody has had that done. If you've had three consecutive miscarriages, you should have been referred to one of our public recurrent miscarriage clinics. There's a few of them around Dublin. They're pretty good, actually. They're very good. Staffed by some really good people. And um, that would be funded. You and that should be funded to, yeah. as opposed to coming to me and paying the 800 euro or 1,000 yeah. euro for these expensive tests yeah. that have to be sent abroad. Uh, so that's something that should be that should be looked at. Again, if you've had recurrent miscarriages, you should be looking inside the womb, either with a hycosy or a hysteroscopy. It's camera inside the womb too. But for the most part, really what you need is to make sure you can do an egg collection safely and you're trying to get a flavor of how you think that person will respond to the to the drugs that you're going to give them. And that's serviced by the AMH, the antral fall count, the full blood count, and then the other bits are just a little bit Johnny come lately. So really all of this testing is giving you a picture of the person who's in front of you and helping you to come up with a treatment plan. Exactly. The... Now, the kicker on this, it comes right back to what we were talking about earlier. It's easy to look at the quality of the sperm. Nowhere in any of the tests that mm. I have spoken about have I mentioned the quality of the egg because there is no test I can do which tells me about the quality of your eggs. Some of the tests, some of the scans or something like that might show endometriosis and that will tell me that maybe the quality of the eggs might be lower. A very small portion of people with polycystic ovarian syndrome have lower quality eggs, but really I don't know. Mm. So everything we do, all those extra ancillary tests, looking at testosterone, looking at prolactin, looking at other other bloods and other markers, it's all in service to trying to work out what the egg quality is indirectly. And it's fraught and it's very difficult and it's very unreliable. <clears throat> you talk about testing, the single biggest test we have for fertility is IVF. IVF is at its core a test by taking eggs out, by taking sperm, by bringing them together and by growing embryos, we get to see what the quality of those eggs are. If I collect 20 eggs and I've got no, and they're all mature and I've got no embryos five days later, I can draw certain, not absolute, but strong conclusions about egg quality based mm -hmm. on on those numbers. Yeah. If I can only get two eggs, it's harder for me yeah. to, to make any kind of sweeping generalizations. What I will often do with people who've had, who I've seen who've had multiple cycles, either with me or with somebody else, and it's it's a pretty depressing exercise, but a very powerful one, is if somebody's had four cycles, you just kind of amalgamate them and you do a count 
first cycle 12x, second cycle 12x, third cycle 10x, fourth cycle 8x. Okay, 12 and 12 is 24, 10, 34, 42x. 42x. How many were mature? How many fertilized? Mm. How many made it to blastocyst? How many babies do you have? How many miscarriages do you have? And you put it all down there and it can make for some very stark reading. Mm. From 42x, you have produced two blastocysts and no baby. There's a problem here. Mm. But because you've kind of fallen from cycle to cycle, you've never really put it all together. And fair enough, some cycles might be better than those, but there's a value in amalgamating that core information. Yeah. So I and that's that's the value of IVF as a test, is that you learn and you adapt, and that more than anything else will allow you to direct the conversation and find find lines of attack for going forward. Is that kind of why you're more of a fan of IVF than IUI. It's one of the, one of, well, that's one of the core reasons. Yes, the because other. You don't re- like if IUI doesn't work, you don't oh, really you don't learn anything. You don't you're you're none the wiser. Yeah. So, so that's yes, that's so that's it. I mean, the other reasons be, are IUI is less successful than yeah. IVF for the most part, and fertility treatment sucks. I am under no illusions that nobody in their right mind wants to ever see me. I get that. So I'm very much of the school of thought, and this does not suit everybody, but I'm very much of the school of thought, get in, work hard, get out. The less time you spend engaging with fertility services to get where you need to go one way or the other, the better off you are. The longer your journey, the worse off you are. The worse off you are financially, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. So IUI can work, and I often sound down on IUI, but I just know what it takes out of people and I want them to get a real bang for their buck not just financially but in all senses of that and for me for the most part and there are exceptions IVF does that better than IUI yeah talked about cost a little bit there let's go back and talk just briefly about um, some of the costs involved sure, because yeah. we have separated out the cost of testing to actual treatment so, packages so what we've done is now I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to get murdered for it. I think our blood package profile, and that's the stuff I want, AMH, TSH, T3, T4, that's your thyroid screen, rubella, full blood count, chlamydia and gonorrhea. I think that's €200. I'm looking it up. I think there's an egg freeze workup where we don't need to go to quite the same depth, but we do need the chlamydia, the gonorrhea, the AMH... uh, on the full blood count, and I think that's 150 or Full marks, yeah. The 200 for the um, full workup. The and HIV and hepatitis screening is 100 euro each. Mm-hmm. The Hycosi test is 300 euro. Yep. The semen analysis is 100 euro. Yep. Um, and the DNA frag, I think, is 300. Yep. Which does include yep. semen analysis as yep. well. So that. So semen analysis and DNA frag yep. is 300. So that's the core things. We have all the other little bits available and there's there's individual yep. costs. What we really want to do is two things. One, be really transparent about the pricing. Yep. Okay, know exactly what, what you're getting into. It's important to do testing before you do treatment. Yep. It is unfortunate there's a cost associated with that. I would like to think that these price points are competitive, yep. by which I mean I know these price points are competitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's cheaper. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, but why why have why has that part of it been separated out? Like I know the logic behind this. Okay, bit. so explain to me. <laughs> because doing the testing allows me to direct the conversation. Mm. You might come in and you might think 
I want to do IVF. My chance of success with IVF are 50%. I go, okay, right. I think you're wrong. I think based on your age and your history, your chances of success with IVF are 30%. Mm. Oh, that's disappointing. Well, it is disappointing, but we're going to do some tests. Then we do some tests. At the end of those tests, I come back and go, we've got some issues here. Mm. I think your chances of success with IVF are 5% mm. or 2% or 1%. Yeah. We've got real challenges here. Um, I have occur I've seen some patients, some of whom I've referred on. We've done a, we've done the hycosy. I'm seeing a cyst in the ovary. I'm seeing a fibre in the uterus that needs further assessment. Mm. I've sent them on for MRIs. It's vital that we do this information before we do procedures. That's yeah. just grossly irresponsible not to. But the testing is all in in the service of not telling the patient what they have to do, but giving them the information and the knowledge of what the test results are, what they mean, what the options are, and what these test results and options, how they interact, mm. what impact they have. And then once the patient understands that, uh, then whatever they decide to do is the right thing to do. So they get all that information. I'll give a recommendation. I have no problem doing that, but at all, of course, based on experience and, and, and expertise and things like that. But ultimately, it's it's their call, you know? Some people will bite your arm off for a success rate of 10%. That's brilliant for them. Some people think that 50% is low. Yeah. And they're both right. Yeah. Nobody's wrong in that situation, but it's just about making sure those expectations are managed appropriately right at the front end. So testing is about doing things safely and making sure that we're doing the right things to the right people. Yeah, right and time. also if you if you had built in any of those tests into a, a cycle and then someone decides not to go ahead with the cycle because they've been given this information that yeah. they have 1% of chance of success, they've paid for... Well, they would be rightfully yeah. upset. Yeah. Yeah, understandably so. And it, But you knew that it was going to... And yeah. I never... I mean, I've, I've always tried over the years to be really transparent with people because it's a horrific thing to hear I had no idea my chances were that bad mm. well geez I feel pretty bad because you're 20 grand in the hole yeah you know yeah and I, we need to make sure that if that is the case it's not enough to say well we told you and we wrote down mm. like if you've got somebody who's come back who has ever said that you need to look at your process and you need to go hang on how did a person did get that far thinking because yeah. there's got to be some degree of co-responsibility there. Now, sure. look, some people stick their head in the sand and I get it, you know, but my job isn't just to say it's a 1% chance of success. There has to be a little bit on me to make sure they understand what exactly that means. And some people, they twig straight away. Mm -hmm. They know exactly what that means. Some people go, so that means I need to do 100 cycles to get one baby yeah. from you. I think, oh, I get, yeah, that's what 1% yeah, yeah. means. And it's fine. You know, every, it's a, you know people uh, people have different different understandings of these things. Um, a lot of people will conflate to, ah, sure, look, it'll either work or it won't, 50-50. Mm. That's not true, you know. I remember explaining, uh, I think, to my parent or to my mom once, the chance of winning the lottery was 1 in 24 million. Yeah. But if you bought two tickets, that dropped to 1 in 12 million. If you bought, you know, <laughs> three tickets, uh, you could think... She could see her brain working. If I buy about 12 tickets, I've got a lock on this thing, you know? <laughs> but once numbers get to a certain big point, mm. they stop making sense to people. Yeah. Now, nobody really appreciates the difference between millions and billions. Not really. Yeah. You know, it's a great way of getting economics past us. Um, so, again, just taking the time and the effort to make sure that people understand what that means, especially when there's a disconnect between their expectations and what you think you can provide. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, last thing I want to talk yep. about is... 
um, testing for people who maybe aren't necessarily thinking about becoming pregnant now. Yeah. And you know what? What would you so suggest? This is people? this is the big drum, the big drum I'm beating all the time. I think that people once they hit their mid twenties, once they are starting having cervical smears, that's when you should get your AMH checked. I don't think you should do anything with the result unless it's abnormal. I think you should just get it checked. Yeah. No, take control of the situation. Um, and semen analysis, I think, is also something that's reasonable to do. Um, I think it should probably form a part of men's health assessments mm. more than it does. I'd love to see that roll out, roll out more. Testing does not mean treatment. Mm. Testing does not mean a commitment to treatment. Testing, just like you did with the AMH, you need to be careful with it. You need to have an understanding. Don't ask a question unless you want to know the answer. But and I've talked about this at length. It's about ownership. It's about empowerment. It's about options. If there is an issue, the sooner you know about it, the better off you are. Nobody else will care about this except you. The onus has to be on you. We can facilitate. We can try to make it affordable. We can try to make things accessible. But I feel for years like I've been shouting into an echo chamber. I really do. I wish this was more of a national priority. Mm. I wish there was more public attention paid to this. And I, yeah, I'm biased. Yeah, I see people struggling day in, day out for years to get pregnant. I've seen people who've got success after going through the pain and hardship of fertility treatment. I've seen people who haven't as well. And a huge common thread that runs through all of their stories is, I wish I had known then what I had known now. Mm. My children, those are people who've been fortunate enough to have children, will be educated differently. Mm. It's too small a cohort. We need to go wider with this. We need people to start taking some responsibility for that, taking some ownership and control back on that. And we need to facilitate that as best as we possibly can. AMH testing. Great way to finish. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for that.